We are in Acts 26 today. We're sprinting through our sermon series in the book of Acts. I'm trying to finish it up by the, by the end of the month. If you were here with us last week, you know that Paul was arrested. He was put into prison. He's accused of a list of crimes, uh, <laughs> lots of trumped up charges. He's accused of instigating a riot. He's, he's probably accused of um, you know, claiming a rival king, someone who is... Uh, usurping the power of the Caesar. Um, and he, he was also accused of what, what had to have sounded to the Romans like this just weird intramural religious debate among Jews, or Jewish customs and Judaism. Because Paul didn't believe he could get a, a fair trial in Judea, he appeals his court case to the emperor, to Rome. And in order to get, get it there, his case has to be tried along the way. And so here we are in Acts 26, Another one of his trials, he's standing in front, he's, he's basically standing in front of the cultural elites of his day. He is in front of King Herod Agrippa, who was part of the you know, great uh, Herodian dynasty. This is the great, or the grandson of Herod the Great, the one who um, put to death the, the infant sons in the city of Bethlehem. He's also before Festus, a Roman administrator, higher level admin guy, and Bernice, a fashionable, powerful woman, kind of a, a Marilyn Monroe-esque kind of figure. She, history goes on to record that she ends up being the mistress of the Roman general Titus, who ends up you know, destroying and conquering the city of Jerusalem. Um, so, yeah, a power woman for sure. And one thing to know before I read, the Romans loved drama. They loved legal courtroom kind of stuff. So everybody who is anybody in the city has come to see Paul on trial. Um, they love courtroom TV. Festus is the presiding judge, you might say. He doesn't have a clue about all of this Jewish stuff. I mean, he's out of his league, out of his element um, when it comes to these Jewish charges. So he asks for Agrippa's help. Now, Agrippa has grown up in Judea, in Israel. He, uh, apparently, he understands the theological nuances of what are being debated. And as he listens to Paul's speech, and Paul's speech is, is directed primarily to him, he is surprised by what Paul has to say. Uh, he's he's um, taken aback by this simple concept that we're going to talk about this morning, and that is persuasion. What, what makes an argument persuasive? Any kind of argument for anybody. I, I, I've always been fascinated by that. Why do, why do I find an argument believable, plausible, and you do not? Like, what is it about, about the human psyche that makes arguments persuasive? And here we get an opportunity to consider it from a Christian perspective. So we jump into the speech in verse 15. Uh, previously, Paul has recounted his conversion on the Damascus robe for the third time in the book of Acts. It, Jesus has said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Verse 15. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen, have seen me and to, to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are being sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, 
I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. And for this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for, that, that, um, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe in the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to become a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become as such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king arose, and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them, and when they, when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man has done nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Thanks be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, for this his word. Amen. Say what you will about the Apostle Paul. He was not playing safe, was he? He wasn't playing, playing it safe. You know, if this was a man who was interested in saving his own neck, interested in, you know, getting, getting himself off the hook, um, he never would have gone for this kind of argument, would he? I mean, Agrippa is shocked that, that Paul would, that this would be Paul's defense. He says, do you think you can persuade me to become a Christian in such a short period of time? Are, are, Paul, are you trying to convert me? And what is Paul's response to that? You bet. <laughs> you betcha. Yeah, I am. Whether it be a short, short time or a long time, I don't care. I wish that all of you were just like me, um, except for these chains. And it leads me to this conclusion, um, this premise. Whether you believe or disbelieve in Christianity, it usually is the result of three things. These three things. Um, This is how persuasion works. Um, Persuasion is multifaceted. It's multi-splendored. Persuasion for us is the mind and the community and personal experience. Persuasion Uh, Another way to put it involves the rational, the social, and the existential. Or like I said earlier, uh, more simply, your mind, your community, and your, your emotions and your personal experience. And what often happens when we are trying to convince one another of, of something, of anything, be it our child convincing us to try and, and let them stay out past their curfew, or an argument that we might have, a husband and a wife, or with a, maybe a dispute that we have with a colleague, what we normally do when we try to persuade someone is we focus on only one of those elements. Normally, it's, it's the, the rational side, you know, the arguments. Believe me. Believe my arguments. Don't you hear, Mom and Dad, what, what I'm saying here? Don't you see my arguments? 
as though that like we as though we are purely rational creatures. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, we're not brains that are just floating around in in the air. A lot of times persuasion uh it goes much deeper than simply the rational. Community matters. Yes, we believe or, or disbelieve something oftentimes based upon our social connections. Um, uh, we'll talk more about that. And, and then, of course, the personal and the emotional matters. Many times we're, we're trying to argue, you know, logic when what's really operative are emotions. That matters. Um, I mean, all of us interpret all of life through the prism of our own lived experience, right? All of us are interpreting everything in part based upon what we have already experienced. And we are filtering out certain arguments and embracing others based upon what we have gone through and how we feel about this thing right now. So, I think Christianity is most persuasive when it involves not one, not two, but all three elements. And they are these. Number one, when you, when you examine the evidence of Jesus Christ— and his resurrection, you will find that, I I believe you will find that to be rationally compelling, at least plausible. Number two, when you you, uh, find a community of Christians who look and sound and act like Jesus, when you find a group like that, that's socially compelling. And then thirdly, finally, when you actually experience the risen Christ, when you like we're talking existential here, when you experience the reality that is him, then all three together are, are kind of the, the ingredients to getting a person to the point where they're like, yeah, that's persuasive. I think I'm ready to believe. So what I want to do is look at the passage with you and, and see if I can't show you this from Acts 26. So first off, we begin with the mind, with, uh, with rationality. Rational arguments do matter, but they don't matter nearly as much as they did 200 and 300 years ago. You know, for centuries in the Western world, everybody followed in the footsteps of French philosopher René Descartes, right? Uh, Descartes was the, the ultimate skeptic. Descartes said, I'm going to doubt everything. I'm going to doubt, I'm going to doubt uh, my own existence. I'm going to doubt Uh, Moral absolutes, I'm going to doubt sensory experience. Do you remember the famous way of how he uh, was able to doubt his own sensory experience? He locked himself in a giant oven, in a dark, in a dark oven, and he just sat there in the darkness and spent his time thinking. And so it was this grand philosophical experiment that goes on to shape Western civilization. Is it possible to build a worldview entirely based off of reason alone? And Descartes said, yes, it is. Um, And if you remember, he had the voila moment. I don't know if it was when he was in the oven or not, but he said, as I'm doubting everything, um, there's one thing I know that I can't be doubting, and that is I'm doubting. <laughs> and if I'm doubting, then that means I must be thinking. And if I'm thinking, then I must have a mind. And if I have a mind, then um, I must be alive. I must be a person. I'm, I must be this rational being. And, you know, he gets the famous expression, cogito uh, ergo sum. I think, therefore, I am. And, and really, for the next several centuries, the way to persuade someone of anything was to make a so- sound 
strong, rational argument, right? Okay, fast forward to the 21st century. How well does that method work today? <laughs> Not very well, does it? No. Because, okay, so, hey, we're, we're postmoderns. We know, we know, we know that all knowledge is socially constructed. Um, we know all knowledge is socially constructed. Everybody basically believes what their, their cultural, culture of origin tells them to believe, what their uh, family of origin tells them to believe, what, what um, their, their, uh, their race tells them to believe. That's very big today. Um, you believe what the people who are surrounding you believe. That's kind of the essence of, um, one of the essences of postmodernism. And on one level, don't we have to agree that is true? It's true insofar as we do tend to believe the arguments of the people that are around us. <laughs> we tend to believe the arguments of the people who um, we spend our time with, or the people that we admire, or the people we want to join with. If there's a group over there and I want to be part of that clique, then it's amazing how um, uh, rationally plausible I find their arguments <laughs> to be. It's true that there is a social component to um, all human knowledge. And uh, that shouldn't surprise us because human beings are social creatures, right? And this applies, it, it's not just to religion. It, it applies in kind of every facet of life. I mean, this is true. Isn't this true of maybe a political coalitions? You, you tend to find the whole package just believable. Or uh, online conspiracy groups. You find, you find their arguments believable. But it's, it's true of, um, uh, uh, of kind of everybody, um, Notice that Paul is not ashamed to make a rational argument. And here's what he does in his speech. Four uh, pieces. Number one, he says there is a resurrection from the dead. Number two, the reason I know this is because I met him. <laughs> I met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Number three, Jesus' death and resurrection is the fulfillment of all that is spoken about in the Old Testament scriptures. And number four, Jesus has sent me on a message, a mission to the world to bring light to those who are in darkness. Now, we only read part of that speech, but because we've been going through the book of Acts, that speech is very similar to all the other speeches that he gives in the book. And, uh, and look at Festus' response in verse 24. What does Festus say? He says, Paul, you're nuts. He roars at the top of his voice. Your great learning has turned you into a maniac. This Roman administrator hears about Paul talking about the resurrection of the dead and, and the Bible and light to those who are in darkness. And he thinks that Paul is a mad scientist. Verse 25, to which Paul replies, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking, the tr I'm speaking true and rational words. At that very moment, he turns to King Agrippa and he says, For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped the king's notice, for this has not been done in a corner. It's a very interesting phrase. What is it that Paul's referring to that has not been done in a corner? Jesus has not been done in a corner. Jesus' life, his healings, his, his miracles, his death and his resurrection. As I said earlier, King Herod Agrippa, the grandson of Herod the Great, was alive in Judea when Jesus Christ was also alive in Judea and performing um, all of his ministry. I mean, there would have been 
hundreds and hundreds of healings that had taken place in that region at that time. There were, right, um, dozens and dozens of exorcisms that were performed. Jesus would draw large crowds because of um, either a miracle that he was performing or the great um, sermons that he was preaching. You would have to have been living under a rock not to have known that something, something was going on then. Uh, and that's what Paul says. Paul says, you know that something amazing happened there, right? He just assumes that there's a ton of evidence to be given. And notice how Agrippa replies in verse 28, not like Festus. He doesn't say, Paul, you're nuts. <laughs> he doesn't say, he says, um, do you think you can persuade me so quickly? And I never realized this until I was listening to another pastor this week point this out. When that is a concession. That's what we call a concession. That's not a man who pushes back on the evidential level and says, oh, Paul, I was living there. There's nothing to this. He says, you think you can persuade me so quickly? Um, th there were things, amazing things associated with Jesus. And that's what Paul is getting at. Um, this is part of the way that he re uh, writes and teaches throughout the New Testament. If you go to another example, would be 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when he's making an argument for the resurrection of Jesus Christ and speaking to a group uh, who might be skeptical of that. He does not say to them, hey, you need to just close your eyes and just believe it. He says, actually, I think there are at least 500 people who, <laughs> who met the risen Christ, why don't you go and talk with them about it? Why don't you, why don't you talk to the eyewitnesses? That's the way he argued. Like church, one of the things I, I do want you to know is that there is strong, reasonable, rational um, evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And one of the ways we know it is because that's how they spoke to their original audience. Their original audience, um, that, that would be persuasive to them. Now, I thought this is really powerful. One author, as, he's, as he writes about this, says, uh, to, when Paul speaks to Agrippa, 20 years after the events had taken place, Paul was able to look a man in the eye who had lived there and say, you know I'm not crazy. You know there's a lot of evidence for what I'm talking about. You may not believe it, but you can't laugh it off. Like, that's strong. That's strong. Um, so I do have a high degree of confidence that if you, if you bring the evidence of Jesus and his resurrection and you show them, oh, how I mean so many of the prophecies in the, of the Old Testament can only find their fulfillment in Jesus, and you lay that in front of an open-minded person, there's plenty there to be uh, plausible and persuasive. So then why doesn't everybody believe the evidence? And the answer is because evidence is really, at the end of the day, probably not the most important thing when it goes to persuasion. We've got to go to the second category, which is community, um, socially. Number two, <clears throat> I didn't have a time this week to do a super deep dive into uh, studies on how human beings acquire knowledge, so I can't document this observation, but I, I have a strong suspicion that people really do tend to believe the same things as those they are around. Um, I already mentioned this. We're social creatures. Uh, we believe in the arguments of the community that we are a part of or the group of the, of, uh, the community that we want to be part of. I, I was on Twitter last night scrolling through my feed, and I came across a, a, a 
tweet by a gal who, she had grown up in the LDS uh, community, and then she converted to Roman Catholicism. But she, she just posted what she thought was a totally innocuous tweet. She said, when I was a Mormon, I was taught that the Garden of Eden was in Missouri. Um, and and then I think it got like 2,000 likes or something. Um, and she, her point was like, that sounds really strange to me right now. And I've grown up around Mormonism kind of all my life. I'm sure at some point in time, I had been told that the Garden of Eden was 45 minutes outside of Kansas City, Missouri. But I had completely forgotten that. But indeed, that was what Joseph Smith taught. And, and actually, they, they believe that when like the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven unto earth, guess where it's going to be located? In Missouri. <laughs> now, how do you get to the point where you believe that is a, a rational, persuasive position? And the answer is, of course, the sociology of knowledge. It's what everybody around you believes. Um, and to the rest of the world, it, it sounds nuts. But if everybody you're surrounded with believes that, that, that is what we tend to find persuasive. And that is why, like, when it comes to people being persuaded of the gospel, of the true truth, community almost means everything. <laughs> it really does. Um, if you ever come into a community that truly embodies the, the values um, and cares that, that most deeply resonate inside of your heart, you're going to find the beliefs of that community um, mostly persuasive. And that's why, so you know, I've been thinking a lot about planning a church because we're talking about going to Scottsdale and doing that, but I've been slowly introduced more and more to church planner communities and what those guys tend to think. And there's this axiom you hear in, um, in those circles. They say it over and over again. It, it's simply this, belonging precedes believing, precedes believing. Belonging precedes believing. Belonging often comes before believing. And the, and the emphasis is, of course, on creating church communities where outsiders can come in and genuinely, genuinely be accepted and loved and cared for and welcomed and um, experience the hospitality of Christ. Um, and, and that often precedes them ever saying, yeah, I think Jesus is the Messiah. Um, why might that be the case? Well, I mean, one of the reasons is a community like that can counteract all of the negative experiences that people have had with churches, right? I mean, the fact of the matter is most people who do not believe um, in America today have somewhere along the road had a very bad experience with religion or with pastors or with other Christians. A famous example of this no, it's not an American example, but I mean, the, who, the guy who you would say is the, is the father of modern atheism, uh, Friedrich, Friedrich Nietzsche. Nietzsche, did you know that Nietzsche was a, a pastor's kid? <laughs> did you know that his, his father was a pastor? When Nietzsche was asked the question, why do you reject Christianity? Nietzsche said it was because I never saw the members of my father's church enjoying themselves. I never, I never saw a group of people who... Um, we're experiencing joy. And, um, you know, there's so many stories of people who have been burned by religion and burned by you know, unhealthy Christianity and judgmental pastors and judgmental parishioners, which makes them almost unwilling to consider, even consider the arguments. 
I wonder if this isn't one of the reasons why Jesus Christ had so many meals with outsiders. Have you ever realized just how, how strange it would be that you have this brilliant Jewish rabbi, I mean, super erudite rabbi, who is an amazing public speaker, who has power coursing out of him, able to multiply loaves and fishes and, and all of that. And who does he sit down and have meals with again and again? Prostitutes, tax collectors, people who had most likely had very bad experiences with his fellow Jews, with his fellow religious people uh, during that day. And it, I think it just goes to show how the power of genuine hospitality and how good food and good drink and good company and genuine warmth can counteract so many of those negative experiences people have had in, in the past. You know, another story of this that I came across when we were down in Arizona being interviewed by the presbytery uh, to see if they would accept us as church planters. Uh, I met the RUF, Reformed University Fellowship Campus Minister, at the University of Arizona, the, the, the only one that matters in the state, Bear Down, and uh, Dan Smith. Dan planted RUF at a, uh, U of A, not ASU, uh, a couple years ago, and they did it in conjunction with another church plant, that, uh, Charles Garland in, uh, in Tucson. And Dan told this story. I'll give it, I'll truncate it and give it to you briefly, but he met a guy who was on campus, a freshman, a paraplegic. So he, he had no use of his limbs from his waist down. Uh, he's in a wheelchair, and he was recruited to the U of A to play on the uh, Wildcats wheelchair basketball team. There is such a thing. Um, and uh, this guy, he had some church background, but you know, not, not a lot. He gets connected with a few RUF students. He starts coming to some of the social activities. He starts meeting with Dan and doing a Bible study. And, um, you know, this guy, your freshman year of college can oftentimes have a way of humbling you into the dust. And he, uh, maybe he was having some difficulty with his sport, or maybe he had a few things that were kind of deeply humiliating that happened to him. And one day he just realized, he said to Dan, he's like, I really need Jesus. <laughs> I thought I had, no, I really need Jesus. And it was at that moment that he uh, came to faith. Well, as soon as that happened, what did he start doing? He started inviting other wheelchair basketball players to come and participate in RUF events, you know, do social activities, and start coming to the church. So the next thing they know in this church plant in downtown Tucson, they've got three 20-year-olds in wheelchairs showing up on a Sunday morning. And what, I don't know if it was Charles or Dan who ended up asking one of these guys, they were not believers, asking him this question, um, like, what do you think of all this that you're hearing? Do, do you, is it persuasive to you? Do you believe any of it? And the guy said, um, I don't know if I believe it yet, but I really like being around these people. And it makes me want to believe it. And, you know, it's just a beautiful um, example of this. You know, we should never, ever, ever uh, doubt, underestimate the power of welcome. <laughs> just under the power of grace, the power of winsomeness, the power of genuine kindness and uh, seeking out the outsider. Um, you know, sometimes what happens is a, a parent will come to faith and their children won't believe 
And I can tell you that, that the welcome that child receives or does not receive at, say, a youth group um, is enormous for them. Sometimes kids believe before parents believe. And the welcome they receive if they ever come to church, the welcome to uh, come to our community group, like those things make the gospel plausible. Um, um, they want to believe when they're loved. A great example of this uh, in church history, um, you know, just how we should never underestimate the power of winsome, gracious speech within a community. John Calvin and William Farrell were you know, very famous pastors in Geneva. And it was actually Farrell who recruited Calvin to come to Geneva. Farrell was known to be uh, kind of a hothead. I mean, he was, he was very fiery in his rhetoric and his speech. Now, on the other hand, Calvin was extremely diplomatic. Uh, one of the things, now granted, he's writing in the 17th century. It's a language form that's very different than our own. But uh, when you read Calvin, you even can, even though the language distance is significant, you sense that here's a man who is very concerned about translating the Bible into the modern man's language. He's writing in such a way as to contextualize the message to people um, winsomely and diplomatically. Well, Calvin one day writes a letter to Pharaoh where he's, he says, you know, you really need to be more diplomatic. Uh, he actually uses these two words, quote, you need to do more to accommodate people. <laughs> and Pharaoh and Calvin goes on, now I know how you're going to interpret this William, I know it's going to sound like I'm advocating just, you know, pleasing other people or maybe being a wuss, but there are, here he says it, as you know, two kinds of popularity. The one, when we seek favor from motives of ambition and the desire of pleasing. The other, when by fairness and moderation, we gain their esteem so as to move them. What is he saying? Simply that, sure, you can Choose to be winsome and gracious as a way to inflate your own ego, <laughs> to make it so that other people will like you. But by that same token, um, it's, just as, it's just as probable to be, you know, sharp in um, demagoguery in your speech, all this for the sake of, you know, uh, of your own ego. And it seems to me when I listen to a lot of the speech that takes place in the public sphere today, a lot of it is very sharp. A lot of it is very hostile. It's almost like it's verbally bullying, demagoguery. Um, that kind of speech is very popular too because the base of whatever group is like, yay, we love this, I'll go get them. But does that speech ever persuade? It does not. No, it does not. All, that it, all it does is <laughs> serve to further antagonize and harden the other side. I can almost imagine Pharaoh writing back to Calvin and say, accommodate others, John. Now, wait a minute. Like, didn't Jesus verbally have plenty of dust-ups with the Pharisees? Didn't Paul, didn't he say some really hard words to you know, people in his church? I mean, yes, they did. But friends, 95% of the time, um, you're going you're gonna to win more with honey than with snark. You're going to win more with honey than hydrochloric acid. Um, yeah, Jesus was sharp on occasions, but like 80% of the time he was not. <laughs> um, certainly not with, with the weak people he was ministering to. Um, 
What's persuasive to the average listener today is kindness and humility. Calvin saw this. Farrell did not. Is it any wonder uh, 400 years later, 500 years later, which of those two guys are we still reading today and admiring today? It's not Farrell, is it? No. So, um, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, the evidence for that is compelling. When a community really believes in that, and as we talked about on Easter, when, when the power of the resurrection, we said it is the future power of the world being restored into harmony. When a, when a church really believes that, that God is going to put everything back together, and he has done that already, he started it in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When a church believes that, it galvanizes them for a life of love, of service, of grace, of humility. And it's that kind of community. If anybody ever walks into it, it's going to find the, the gospel far more persuasive than anything else. And I think the greatest joy you're going to experience is if you invite somebody to All Saints one day and, and, and they say to you, you know what, I thought you Christians, I thought you, you were judgmental and hateful and dismissive of the poor, and I found out I was so wrong. I found out that you are genuine and you are generous and you're hospitable and kind. I found out, simply I found out, that you look and sound like Jesus there's no greater blessing than to have somebody say that to you. All right, so where does Paul speak about this second element? You notice I didn't cite any uh, Bible verses from Acts 26. Where does he talk about this in his speech? The answer is he, he doesn't. <laughs> he doesn't. But it's really one of the themes of the entire book of Acts, hasn't it been? How the early Christians, how those early Christian communities truly embodied the love of Christ— uh, the way of Christ. And that's what made them such a countercultural example to the rest of the Roman Empire. So even though it's not here in Acts 26, it's definitely in the book of Acts. It's very important. But thirdly, there is yet one more that may even be the key to it all, and that is the personal, the existential, and the emotional. And that is found all throughout Paul's speech. Paul, in this speech, looks at Festus, Agrippa, and Bernice, and says, I met him. <laughs> I met him. He appeared to me. The risen Christ, he appeared to me on the road to Damascus. I met the living Lord. He demanded to know why I was persecuting him. Um, I saw him in all of his glory. I cannot deny this fact. The man that I am standing in front of you right now is a completely changed man than the guy who was going to uh, the city of Damascus. I cannot deny that fact. Friends, if you ever meet the real Jesus, you will not leave indifferent from that experience. You can't. You cannot meet the real Jesus and be unchanged. No one remains unchanged. It's impossible. If you have really met Jesus, he, uh, he, you'll have a story to tell. Isn't that what it is? You'll have a story to tell. He, he, um, you'll have a story to tell of the encounter of what he has done for you, of how he has changed your life, and why he is so precious to you. What's so nice about this is Paul just tells his own story. I mean, it's not rocket science. A lot of times we think evangelism is, I got to know all the objections to the faith. No, you don't. I mean, what's most persuasive to a modern person today is, is this thing, is this faith real to you? Has it done anything to you? 
Like, are you emotionally moved by it? Because if you've met Jesus personally, it affects your mind, heart, and emotions. Now, when we were going through church planner assessment, our lead assessor planted, planted um, with his wife a church about 45 minutes outside of St. Louis. And is he, I asked him the question, I think I did, like, what was one of the things you really learned from that experience? And he said, you know, when we were meeting with people, what, what they were most surprised about, when we were just developing relationships with people, they were most surprised at our vulnerability with them. Um, we would just tell them things about our own struggles and sorrows. They were like, you're sharing that with us? <laughs> and they were like, yeah, we're sharing that with you. And we're also sharing with you like how Christ, what Christ did for us in this, how Christ ministered to us in this. And it was just that package of vulnerability with personal testimony to a real Jesus. He said that's what opened so many more doors for us uh, in terms of persuasion. You know, really the personal side of it is, I think it's key. And I think a lot of people, they don't believe in Jesus. It's because of personal hang-ups that they have. I know a pastor who was in a conversation with a friend and he was trying to persuade him, you know, to believe and follow Jesus. And the guy, the guy was very honest. He said, look, I used to pose all of these intellectual objections to Christianity. Um, I now see that, like, based on, there's so many eyewitnesses, and based on the fact that all these people ended up dying for their faith, my intellectual objections are largely satisfied right now, and yet I'm not ready to believe. And the pastor replies, well, why not? And he says, because I know the moment I give my life to Christ, I'll have to forgive my father, and I hate him. And I'm terrified of, of what it will mean for me to forgive that bully. And, um, I, I'm terrified of, of what it would mean. And that's what, you know, Christ would require of me. And I really believe that, you know, a lot of times people are bring, bringing intellectual objections when really at the deeper level, it's just personal. Um, they're deeply personal reasons. I want to say, ask you, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ today, what are your hang-ups? Are they the rational? Do you have objections to the evidence? Are they the social? Have you been burned by, by Christian communities in the past? Uh, or are they the existential? The reason I ask you the question is I really want you to answer it. It's not a rhetorical. I really want you to, to think about that and answer it. And don't do what is found in verse 30, if you look with me, at the end of Paul's speech. Notice what his audience does in, in reply. Then we read, The king arose, and the governor and Bernice, and those who were sitting with him. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. They end the passage arguing about legal technicalities and whether or not this guy should really be in court. Did you notice how impersonal their response is? None of, none of those, got, they're not talking about the heart. It's so impersonal. Um, let me conclude with this. You know, a lot of people who are on the road progressing towards faith, one of their hang-ups is this category of certainty. Like we are, we've got an entire generation that is really afraid of commitment and they want a really high level of certainty before they do uh, much of anything. You know, like I want to be absolutely sure that Jesus is this and, and 
Um, I want 100% certainty. Well, let me give you this scenario. Let's say that you're an employer who you're trying to hire somebody and you use that same standard in your job interviews. You want to be absolutely certain this is the right person for the job before you hire them. Like you want empirical evidence that they are the one. Uh, what's going to happen to that, to you as an employer? You're going to have nobody in your company. <laughs> You're not going to hire anybody because you can't get to that level of certainty with a human being. Um, sure, you can use your reason. You, you, can, you can interview them. You can um, search their resume. You can call on their references. You can have them take a personality test. You, you're not just going eeny, meeny, miny, mo. You use your reason, um, but, but ultimately, whenever you're dealing with people, you're going to have to take a risk. I mean, to commit to them, to commit to another person, it always involves risks. You have to bring them on. Same thing happens in marriage. If you want to be absolutely certain that you're marrying the right person, 100% certain, you'll be a bachelor for the rest of your life. You really will because you can't achieve that. Not with, not with people. Not with people. Um, People are risky. And what I think you may not understand is Jesus is not an idea. He's a person. (laughs) He's a person who is calling you into faith and allegiance. So what I would encourage all of us to do, um, even those of us who are Christians, who maybe have our doubts, look at the evidence for the resurrection. It's strong. Um, Then look at the community and ask yourself, are these people the real deal? Are they gracious and loving and forgiving and accommodating like Jesus? And then number three, personally, emotionally, look at what Jesus did for you on the cross. Look at him dying for you. And that will touch you emotionally. Um, And always, the, the very best thing we can do for anybody who's searching is to pray that they would meet, that they would really meet the risen Jesus. In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Agrippa asks, and Paul says, you bet. Short or long, uh, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become as such as I am, except for these chains. Amen.